Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across from me is my good friend, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Those moons are really calming. They are relaxing, and I was inspired to use them by a song that was written about this case, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your two, grab yourself a double-double and an Anaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. The daddy of true crime. The silver daddy. <laughs> it's Father's Day today. It is Father's Day. Uh, we're recording on Father's Day, so... Happy Father's Day to all the fathers and to all the mothers who've acted as fathers. Also, happy Father's Day. Chin chin. Chin chin. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, on the morning of January 31, 1969, a 12-year-old girl on the way to school stumbled upon the body of Gail Miller, a 20-year-old nurse's aide. She was lying in the snow in an alley, face down. Gail had been raped, murdered, and discarded in the snow by her killer. As there had been a number of sexual assaults in the city, police were under enormous pressure to solve the murder, and soon their attention turned to 16-year-old David Edgar Milgard. He'd been seen at a home near the alley where Gail's body lay, and witnesses later claimed, among other things, they'd seen blood on David's clothing the morning of the murder. Milgard, who had left the province, learned that police were looking for him, and he was apprehended in Prince George, B.C. after turning himself into police there. Exactly a year after the murder, Milgard was convicted of Gail's killing and sentenced to a term of life in prison. Justice, it appeared, had been served we'll find out that this was not the case at all. After serving 23 hellish years in prison, David Milgard, who'd always maintained his innocence, was finally exonerated by DNA evidence that pointed to another man as Gail Miller's killer. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 224, Tragedy Times 2, Gail Miller and David Milgard, part 1. In 1969, Saskatoon was a city of around 129,000 people. That's about half the size that it is today. It's still a small city by most standards, but is the largest city in Canada's only rectangular province, Saskatchewan. It is located on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis, 
With its dependence on agriculture, Saskatoon has experienced many booms and busts throughout its history. It's a trapezoid. I right? know it's a trapezoid, Matthew. Because the, the southern bottom bit oh on the 49th parallel is yeah. wider than the top, which is on the 60th parallel. And actually... Thus making it a trapezoid. The parallel would indicate that there's a curve with the curvature of the earth as well. So it is actually not even a trapezoid. But our maps are flat. Correct. <laughs> a few of the many notable people from Saskatoon include singer Joni Mitchell, author Farley Mowat, the late Roderick Toombs, a.k.a. Rowdy Roddy Piper, one of my favorite wrestlers, and a bushel of hockey players, including, of course, Mr. Hockey himself, Gordie Howe. An honorable mention related to true crime, also born in Saskatoon, is Dateline NBC's Keith Morrison. Don't forget about the roaring game. Oh, wh which roaring game is that? Curling. Oh, help us. So you forgot the Richardsons, Arnold, Ernie, and... and yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Curling family. A curling family. You used to curl, didn't you? I did. I curled in high school. Did you have fun? I did. I had a lot of fun. Cool. I've never curled. I was usually the lead because I wasn't a very good curler. And uh, if I remember correctly, my skip was Mike Camo. Mike Camo. What, what a Canadian name. Mike Camo. Michael Camo. What would my name be? Your Matthew Stockton? No, my, my, my fun name. My curling name. What? I don't know what your curling name would be. You get to make that up. I don't. <laughs> okay, listeners, we want you to write in and tell us what my curling name would be. What would Matthew's curling name be? <laughs> uh, I think it has something to do with glitter or sparkles, though. Do you see any sparkles on me? Not, th not today. <laughs> <laughs> As with many families on the prairies in those days, the Miller clan was a large one. Gail Elena Miller was the second of nine children born to Milton and Jean Miller in 1958. She had three brothers, Lloyd, Jack, and Jimmy, and five sisters, Peggy, Wendy, Betty, Doreen, and Diane. Gail had grown up in Laura, a tiny hamlet and farming community in Saskatchewan's Montrose Royal Municipality, and it was a 57-kilometer drive southwest of Saskatoon, so if they needed supplies, they only had to drive around 45 minutes. Always aiming to help people, a career in nursing was a natural step for Gail. She'd trained in Swift Current to become a nurse's aide, and after snagging a job at City Hospital in Saskatoon, she moved to the city in early September 1968. Gail landed at a rooming house at 130 Avenue O in the working-class neighborhood of Pleasant Hill in the western part of the city. She started her job at the Saskatoon City Hospital on September 4th and took the bus to work every day. That fall, there had been several sexual assaults in the city. It was big news. On October 21, 1968, a woman was sexually assaulted near 18th Street and Avenue G and H in Saskatoon. On November 13, 1968, another victim was sexually assaulted near 18th Street between Avenues E and F. These assaults occurred approximately 8 to 10 blocks from Gail Miller's rooming house and where her body was later found. Both of these assaults took place in the early evening. Also, in both of those assaults, the victims were grabbed by their assailant and taken to a nearby alley where they were directed to remove their clothing. The attacker had brandished a knife in each of the attacks, 
but neither of the victims were stabbed. There was a third attempted assault on November 28, 1968. This woman had been indecently assaulted near Wiggins Avenue and Temperance Street in Saskatoon. This assault also took place in the evening shortly after 9.30 p.m. The victim was grabbed by an assailant with a knife and taken to an alley. A car came along before the assailant was able to sexually assault the victim and he escaped. On December 14, 1968, Saskatoon police issued a warning in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix advising of the assaults and telling women not to talk to strangers or walk in dark areas of the city. The circumstances of all three of the 1968 assaults were similar, and although police had not identified any suspects, they believed a single perpetrator had committed all of them. Gail had to have been aware of the assaults as they occurred so close by. Perhaps, as the attacks had all taken place in the evening, she felt a bit safer as she left the house at her usual time, 6.45 a.m. That's when she was last seen by her roommates on the morning of January 31, 1969. There was an icy fog in the air that morning, and Environment Canada records showed that the temperature had been an ungodly minus 41 degrees Celsius, with a bit of southerly wind adding to the chill. Gail, in her uniform, was bundled up in her warm black winter coat and ready to brave the cold to walk the block and a half to one of two bus stops. The bus stop on the southwest corner of 20th Street and Avenue O was her usual stop although she had been known to catch the bus a block east of there at Avenue N and 20th Street. She never made it to the bus stop that morning and was not seen alive again by anyone other than her killer. So here she is, a nurse's aide. Yeah. Tough job in many ways. Very tough. You know, nursing in a way is kind of like a way of life more than just a job from mm -hmm. my friends. Yeah. Underpaid, in my humble opinion, for what they do for us. I think so as well. Walking early in the morning before the sun is up to catch a bus at minus 41 degrees. That's minus 41.8 Fahrenheit for U.S. listeners. Mm -hmm. And she loses her life yeah. this horrible way on this really cold morning. It's, yeah. You've painted a really bleak picture here. Well, it was bleak. I know. And, you know, the whole thing is bleak. Even the street names. <laughs> yeah, it's like we don't want to bother. I don't understand. Like, it's so boring. You know, we're just going to, like, alphabetize them. It's probably, I get it. They, you do that in a city that you want people to be able to find their way around in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But you're not going to get lost in Saskatoon. Well, here in, in Surrey, the streets have a lot of... Uh, Numbers. Numbered. Like avenues and then streets, they're all Amy, numbers. Amy, you two out there in the in the uh, Yumber Yard mm -hmm. will be singing "Where the Streets Have No Name" by, by you two. Oh God! <laughs> At around eight thirty a.m., grade six student Mary Alice Marcou was on her way to school for her morning classes. The sun had just come up, and it was not quite fully light out. Mary Alice cut through the alley and was shocked to find the body of a young woman lying face down in the snow beside a picket fence behind 221 and 227 Avenue N. Mary Alice ran to the nearby neighbor and was told to go to the funeral home a couple of doors down at 1402 20th Street, 30 meters or so away from the body. A couple of men, the funeral home manager, Mr. Murdoch, and his assistant, Mr. McCalliuk, checked on the woman and determined that she was dead. They placed a blanket over her. Why would she be sent to a funeral home? Do, do funeral directors have medical degrees or something? No, they don't. But uh, a funeral director 
in a small town would be the person that first comes to mind if you find someone deceased. Yeah, I guess you're right. If they're just two doors down sort of thing, mm -hmm. like, oh, call, go to where the funeral director is. And also where I grew up in Bridgewater, the funeral homes, there was Wombacks at the time and uh, Sweeney's. And both of those places were also the ambulance operators in town. Same with my, my same family ran the ambulance and the funeral. So that might've been the, that might've been the case here. Okay. So it would make sense. Yeah. Look at that. We figured it out. Mm. <laughs> I just had to go back in my, <laughs> yeah, exactly. way back in time. Police were called and at around 8.50 a.m., Sergeants Parker and Reed of the Saskatoon City Police were the first officers on the scene from court documents. They removed the blanket and examined the body. Sergeant Parker said it was the body of a young woman. He said he checked her pulse, found nothing, and that her right hand was frozen. He said her coat was open. The right strap of her brassiere was off her shoulder. Her dress was pulled down and up and rolled about the midsection. Her underclothing and nylon stockings and garter belt were down around her ankles. The right shoe was missing, and there were lacerations to her throat and stomach area. There was attached to the dress a nameplate, Miss Gail Miller. Identification officers were called, and pictures were taken, end quote. Sergeant Parker examined the area where the body was lying. To him, it appeared that a scuffle had taken place and the body had fallen to the snow. There were patches of blood in the snow. Evidence indicated that the crime had happened close to where Gail lay and that she had not been dragged there. At about 10.20 a.m. of the same day, Lieutenant Pencala was searching the area where Gail's body was found. Buried in the snow beneath Gail's body, he found the broken blade of a paring knife. This blade was three and a half inches in length, sharpened on one side, and five-eighths of an inch in width. The matching maroon handle was later found in a nearby yard. Gail's missing boot and a sweater were found buried in the snow nearby. Contents from her purse were found strewn about adjacent backyards, chiclets, her comb, a pair of scissors, lipstick, and her keys. Gail's purse was found a few days later in a nearby garbage can in the same alley, but her wallet was missing. A coroner, Dr. Fogel, was called and the body was removed to St. Paul's Hospital. As a matter of course, the body was positively identified as that of Miss Gail Miller, employed as a certified nurse's aide at the city hospital. An autopsy was performed on Gail's body by pathologist Dr. Harry Empson hours after her death with Saskatoon police officers Lieutenant Joe Pencala and Thor Kliev of the Identification Division in attendance. So she had worked at City Hospital. Do you think they took her to St. Paul's Hospital intentionally so her colleagues at City wouldn't be put through the trauma of seeing her? No, oh, no. I don't think that would be the case. Probably St. Paul's was where they took forensic cases because okay. it, if typically there's always one hospital in the city where that, yeah. where forensic autopsies would happen okay. and that's probably where. Yeah. According to court documents, Dr. Emson's findings were as follows, quote, on the front of the neck and on the upper chest from beneath the chin to the regions of the collarbone on both sides were a group of incisions. There were approximately 15. Many of them were superficial scratches, which had not divided the skin completely. Two of them divided the skin and the tissues below the skin and had exposed the muscles of the neck. In the region of the left collarbone were three stab wounds, 
each approximately five-eighths of an inch in width. Just below the left breast were three similar wounds. There was one more stab wound of the same size on the right lower chest, just to the right of the midline. On the deceased's back were five stab wounds of similar nature. Four were grouped on the back of the right chest and one almost in line with the right armpit. In addition, on the back of the lower left leg was a small bruise, superficial abrasions to both cheeks, the chin, and the nose, and a small bruise with an abrasion on the upper left eyelid. Four of the stab wounds and the lateral wound all penetrated the chest cavity, two of which injured the lung. Death ensued from loss of blood, there being about three pints of blood in the chest cavity. End quote. Oh, that is all so violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, she was stabbed 15 times. That's just so horrible. Yeah, throat and uh, in the torso, abdomen areas. Samples were taken from Gail's vagina and tested. They were found to contain non-motal spermatozoa. And for some reason, those samples were then discarded. As well, in yet another fumble, Gail's clothing was removed and left temporarily on the floor of the autopsy room exposing it to contamination and making it tainted as evidence. I was going to ask why they'd do that, but then this is 1969. Did they not know better? It wasn't standard practice to do that. Why would they do that? I don't know. I don't understand. Um, The last murder in the town in Mm. Saskatoon had been in 1967, so two years prior. So it wasn't something that they regularly had to do. So that might be exactly why it was just like, mm, okay. Right. Maybe that's what they typically did for bodies and then were like, oops, oh, forgot this is, yeah, a, this cri- is, a, this diff- is a crime. Well, I guess the body is evidence, isn't it? At yeah. this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. A team of police officers undertook a coordinated canvas of the neighborhood, asking people if they noticed anything unusual on the morning of January 31st, 1969. The search covered an approximately six square block radius. No one recalled seeing anything out of the ordinary. Police talked to Gail's roommates. They weren't sure which route Gail had taken that morning in order to get to either bus stop she was known to use. Perhaps investigators thought Gail had taken the alley to avoid being out in the biting cold of the wind. Adeline Hall, a roommate of Gail Miller's, was the last one to have seen Gail before her body was discovered. Quote, I was rushing down to have my bath and I saw Gail standing at the end of the hallway looking out onto Avenue O. She was looking out the window and having a cigarette, end quote. Another one of Gail's roommates, Linda Marquardt Brasselge, was a close friend of Gail's. Linda told police that Gail had said while she and her boyfriend Les had discussed marriage, they both dated other people. Other friends of Gail's said that the relationship between Gail and her boyfriend Les was more or less on and off again, and one even claimed that she'd seen Les slapping Gail quite hard. Police took a good look at Les, but it was verified that he had been at his own home at the time of Gail's murder. You know, this point of um, her boyfriend um, supposedly hitting her Mm -hmm. hard, um, I I actually found a study out of the UK, I couldn't find one for Canada, about nurses and domestic violence at home. Mm -hmm. And and it was uh, from the Cabell Nurses Trust they found that nurses in the UK are three times more likely to be victims of domestic abuse. Interesting. So former nurse Claire Richards of the National Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence and Abuse um, 
you know, she's a, a nurse herself, and she said that she thinks, you know, nurses' dedication to helping others often leaves them more vulnerable to abuse. Totally, I can she, see that. She says that violence is something we may experience on our prof in our professional lives, so our metal gets tested. And she said, you, we also have a higher tolerance than the average person out there on the street for violence because, you know, violent hospitals can be, you know, you get patients in there. And she also said that she thinks maybe it's very much, you know, the nature of a nurse to want to fix things, to try to heal things and, you know, commitments um, to, to the family, right? Right. And nurses' hours are crazy. Yeah. So, you know, they have to work very long shifts and it would be hard to maintain a relationship with somebody yeah. uh, trying to, you know, balance that yeah. as well. But it's just, you know, so, you know, nurse, I have a piece of my heart for nurses, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I like to say they're the first one that holds you when you're born and the last one that holds you when you die. Yeah. And they get the short end of the stick often. Police learned that the night before Gail was murdered, she had invited her roommates, the aforementioned Linda and Betty Hunt, another resident of the rooming house, to the birthday party of another man that, that she had been going with, Dennis Elliott. Elliott told police that he had driven Gail Miller home from his own 23rd birthday party at around 1.30 a.m., January 31, 1969, and that they were talking in his car for 15 to 45 minutes before he walked her to her door. Gail's other male friends and acquaintances were investigated as possible suspects, but all were eventually eliminated. The police also interviewed and investigated Gail's co-workers at the city hospital to identify anybody suspicious there. They even checked all the dry-cleaning outfits in the city, hoping for a lead on someone bringing in bloody clothing after the murder, but again, nothing. The police interviewed Gail's family and friends to try to identify possible suspects and a motive for the murder, but they kept coming up empty. Gail, they said, was sociable and friendly, but very responsible. She had no enemies that anyone knew of. The cops thought they had a promising lead when they learned that a construction worker, who always wore a hard hat and had normally taken the same bus that Gail was usually on, but had not been on it that day. Larry Earl Fisher was one of two people identified in this connection, as he stood waiting for the bus, wearing a yellow construction hat. Larry lived in the basement suite of the Cadrain residence at 334 Avenue O South, within two blocks of the murder scene. He lived there with his wife Linda and their infant daughter Tammy. When Fisher spoke to police on February 3, 1969, he told police that he'd gone to work as usual that day, and they didn't check on that. Larry was not considered a suspect, and it was another construction worker who'd been not on the bus that day who was identified as an early suspect, but was also quickly eliminated. Larry Fisher's wife, Linda, was questioned at home. She said that she'd not noticed anything out of the ordinary on the day of Gail Miller's murder. On February 4, 1969, Pankala returned to the murder scene and found two frozen lumps in the snow, one of which contained human pubic hair. Pathologist Dr. Harry Empson found them to contain spermatozoa. Staff Sergeant Bruce Painter of the RCMP lab identified human semen with A antigens in one of the frozen lumps, meaning that, presumptively at least, the donor of the semen was of blood type A and a secretor of antigens. At the time of the Miller murder, the sexual assaults mentioned previously were still unsolved and the police did not have any suspects. Although the earlier rape victims had not been robbed, stabbed, or killed, 
the police viewed the circumstances of these assaults to be similar to the modus operandi of the Gail Miller rape and murder. They thought they were possibly the work of the same predator. The police checked all the names of previous sexual offenders and eventually eliminated them as suspects for the earlier assaults and for Gail's murder. In the early days of the investigation, they had very little to go on other than the physical evidence that they couldn't match to anyone. The public was terrified that Gail's murderer had not been caught. News stories about the absence of any arrests and lack of viable suspects applied pressure to the 250-member-strong Saskatoon police force to solve the crime. They were desperate to find a suspect and make an arrest. They'd soon get what they thought they needed. More after a quick break, but first, here's a promo for a podcast that we think you might like. It's called Tapes from the Dark Side. Have a listen. Tapes from the Dark Side. Tapes from the Dark Side. Tapes from the Dark Side. Is an awesome new true crime podcast. What motive could a father have for hurting his own son? What dark secret is Mark Redwine hiding? In season one, the host TZ Borden investigates the curious case of a missing 13-year-old boy and the father suspected of murder. Please go search Tapes from the Dark Side on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tapes from the Dark Side. You should give it a good listen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts on this story so far? This is one of the really bleak ones. Yeah. Yep. You know, I I don't know. I just the way you've painted this picture, right? Mm-hmm. Of it's a, just a very cold scenario. Yeah. And bleak. It is. Yeah. David Edgar Milgard was the oldest of four children born to Lorne and Joyce Milgard. David struggled psychologically early on at home and at school. At only five years old, his parents and educators were so concerned they began to involve a string of professionals in the little boy's life. He was poked and prodded by doctors and tested and spoken to by social workers, psychologists, and even a child psychiatrist. David was 13 the first time he ran away. At the end of their collective tethers with the unruly boy, David's parents and doctors had him placed in a Yorkton mental health clinic and, later on, into a foster home. By the time David was 14, he was incorrigible, landing himself in the Saskatchewan Boys' School in 1967. He ran away twice from the reform school and left school for good that same year. David grew his hair long and joined the hippie crowd. He was drinking and using drugs like LSD and marijuana regularly. He was traveling all over Western Canada, landing in hippie flop houses in Regina, Edmonton, and Vancouver. When he showed up in Saskatoon in January of 1968, David's mother tried to have him admitted once again to Yorkton Mental Health Clinic. He ended up in a couple of foster homes, ran from both, and was on the road again. 
David traveled around Canada and somehow eventually made his way to Oregon, where he was arrested in August of 1968 and booted out of the country. David did get into some legal trouble. He was charged and convicted of a number of offenses relating to theft, joyriding, and drugs, but there had never been any violence involved. David Milgard, his friend Ron Wilson, and Nicole John, a girl they'd met in a park only days earlier, had an idea. Their plan was to pick up their pal Albert Shorty Cadrain in Saskatoon and then head out to Vancouver to buy LSD to bring back to Saskatchewan. Some would be for their own use and some would be for resale. Ron Wilson's car, a 1958 Pontiac, was a beater and in bad shape. It badly needed a battery, but rather than pay for one, Milgard and Wilson stole a battery from another vehicle and during the theft they spilled battery acid on themselves, staining their pants. On the early morning of January 31, 1969, at around 1 a.m., the trio, Milgard, Wilson, and John, left Regina. While on the way, in Aylesbury, they broke into a grain elevator looking for cash and valuables. There was no money, but Milgard stole a flashlight. Back on the road, Wilson and Milgard discussed mugging people and purse snatching as a means of funding the trip for gas money hotels and more cash for drugs at their destination. My grandfather had a grain elevator. Yeah. <laughs> he never kept cash in a grain elevator. Well, I don't know who would. I mean, there's usually a building that's attached to a grain elevator, so maybe they thought that there was, I don't know. Oh, okay, maybe it was the side building. Yeah, it could have been. Like the office next to the grain elevator. Yeah, the okay. office, the okay. grain, they didn't indicate whether or not okay. it was the... I can't imagine going into a grain elevator. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm going to get me some money in a grain elevator. In the grain. I'm going to dig around in the grain and hope that somebody dropped their change while they were uh, putting the grain inside. <laughs> when they arrived in Saskatoon at around 6.30 a.m., they had trouble finding Albert Cadrain's house and drove around for a bit. It was foggy, icy, and there was a lot of snow on the roads. David Milgard was the only one who'd ever been to Cadrain's house, and that was only one time. The group had seen a woman in a black coat and stopped beside her to ask directions. Her face was obscured by her hood and a scarf, protection from the cold, so the group never got a good look at the woman. The woman couldn't help them much, so they drove on slowly. Ron's crappy car, ill-prepared for winter driving, became stuck in the snow. It isn't clear where, as all three would later make statements that contradicted each other but I'll put the incident within a block to a block and a half where Gail Miller's body would be found later. They tried and tried to get the car to move, but were unsuccessful. Nicole stayed in the car while Ron and David set off for help, both going in different directions. Both boys returned a while later. Not much time had elapsed, and two men in a cream-colored vehicle helped them extricate Ron's jalopy from the snow. The group then drove to a Travelier Motel on 22nd Street, where Milgard entered in stocking feet, and he asked the front desk manager, Robert Rasmussen, for directions to St. Mary's Church, which he knew to be just across the street from Cadrain's house. It was now somewhere between 7 and 7.30 a.m. The man at the front desk gave Milgard the directions he needed, and they were off again. Ron's car got stuck again in an alley in the 300 block of Avenue T South behind Walter and Sandra Danchuk's home. Walter and Sandra's vehicle had also become stalled in the alley, blocking Wilson's path, and he stalled behind their car. The trio went into the house with the Danchucks to wait for a tow truck, 
and the Danchucks both later testified at Milgard's trial that they did not observe anything unusual about Milgard and saw no blood on his clothing. Sandra Danchuk later told CBC News he was just a nice, helpful young guy. Walter Danchuk estimated the time of Wilson's vehicle arrival as between 7.30 and 7.45 a.m., while Sandra Danchuk had said it had been between 7.40 and 7.50. So, you know, 10 minutes either way. The tow truck came to boost the Wilson vehicle, and then it was driven to Cadrain's house at around 9 a.m. By that time, only two blocks away, police were already dealing with Gail Miller's body, it having been found at around 8.30 a.m. Milgard and Wilson both changed clothes at Cadrain's place. Milgard claimed that he'd ripped the crotch of his pants and that there were holes where he'd spilled battery acid. To keep the crappy car running, Milgard went outside and drove it around the block a couple of times by himself, but it stalled again right in front of Cadrain's. Another tow truck was called, and this time Ron's car needed its transmission repaired at a nearby service station. This is boarding on Keystone Cops. It's totally. <laughs> I just heard a little that little funny music going while it was happening. Uh, yeah, and what a, what a piece of crap this car was. It's <laughs> like, you're traveling from Regina to Vancouver. That's not just next door. That's, how long would that be? Uh, that's like three, four days of driving. Especially in the highways in the 60s as mm -hmm. well, right? They yeah. wouldn't have had like the bigger bigger highways. Yeah, unless you're driving all night long. I mean, you could probably do it in, in two days. Did you ever have a total jalopy, though, that you loved? Yes. You know? Yes, I did. I had uh, a car. My, my very first car was a 1982 Dodge Colt. Okay. And when I bought it, it needed shocks in the back so it would bounce like really bounce <laughs> when i went over a bump because the shocks were gone okay and well, all you needed to do is put some of those fluorescent lights underneath and i know turn up the music <laughs> but my friend my friend ken always says he can remember watching me drive over the speed bumps in the plaza parking lot in bridgewater and just my car boing 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 <laughs> boing bouncing <laughs> bouncing through the parking yeah. lot yeah my girlfriend at the time shelly wouldn't get into the car why? Because she was embarrassed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, well, whatever. After the car was again drivable, the group set out for Edmonton. But they got lost and ended up in Calgary and had to detour north. There in Edmonton, before heading to Vancouver, Milgard wanted to visit his girlfriend, Sharon Williams. While on the highway, Nicole John found a cosmetic bag in the glove box and held it up, asking whose it was. Milgard grabbed the bag and threw it out the window. Milgard later admitted the incident to his lawyer, but was unable to explain why he did it or where the cosmetic bag had come from. After learning that Ron Wilson's father had become ill, the group cut their trip short and drove back to Regina, arriving on February 6, 1969. The Regina police arrested Albert Cadrain for vagrancy, and during questioning, they learned that Albert lived only a block and a half from the scene of Gail Miller's murder. The fact that Cadrain had left town the very same day sent up a red flag, and the pressure was on. When they asked Cadrain if he knew anything about the murder, he told police that this was the first time he'd heard of it happening. When Albert Cadrain returned home to Saskatoon on March 1, 1969, he asked his family about Gail Miller's murder. They filled him in. Cadrain learned that police were desperate for a lead and that they were offering a $2,000 reward for information leading to their arrest and conviction of Gail Miller's murderer. On March 2nd, 
Albert Cadrain walked into the Saskatoon police station, claiming he had a story to tell. Cadrain gave a statement to Detective Eddie Karst. According to information published in the later inquiry into this case, Cadrain gave the following information. Milgard arrived at the Cadrain's house on the morning of the murder at about 9.05 a.m. Cadrain had not seen him for about a year and his arrival was unexpected. Milgard brought two friends, Wilson and John, whom Cadrain had never met before. One of the first things Milgard said was that they had to leave town right away. Cadrain was asked to go with them and he agreed to go on the trip. Cadrain said that as Milgard changed his pants and shirt in the living room in front of everyone, he noticed blood on Milgard's shirt and pants. Cadrain thought Milgard put the soiled clothes back in his suitcase, but he wasn't sure. Milgard took Wilson's car for a drive around the block alone. The car stalled and had to be towed to a service station where it was fixed. Milgard always seemed in a hurry. Milgard always talked about cleaning the car. Milgard talked about a gun once, but Cadrain never saw one, nor did he see any blood or knives in the car. Everyone seemed to be afraid of Milgard at the time, according to Cadrain. I think this Albert person wants the $2,000 and he's saying anything he can to get it. Well, Albert isn't here to defend himself. Uh, he's passed away, but I can verify that he did collect the $2,000. Mm. I get into it in the next episode. Okay. There were problems with Albert uh, later on in life. Some problems manifested um, mentally with right. him. Okay. So This was the most promising lead so far. And to follow up, Detective Karst made his way to Winnipeg, where Milgard was at the time. On March 3, 1969, Karst, along with Sergeant Thomas Edmondson of the RCMP, interviewed David Milgard. Milgard was told he was a suspect in Gail Miller's murder, but not yet asked whether he was involved. At first, Milgard denied having been in Saskatoon at all that year, but soon admitted he'd been there on January 31st. He admitted they'd been lost, confirmed that he'd asked directions of a, quote, old woman on the street who'd been wearing a black coat. He confirmed they'd become stuck in an alleyway, but stopped short of admitting He'd been by himself at any time on the morning of January 31, 1969. He admitted to having changed his clothes due to tears and battery acid damage, but could not recall what he'd done with them. He admitted being in a hurry and excited to get going that day, but said it was because he was looking forward to seeing his girlfriend Sharon in Edmonton. David also admitted to having been stoned while on the trip. Karst then asked David about his criminal record and David said he had convictions for sexual immorality, I'm not sure what that means, trafficking, stolen cars, break and enter, escaping lawful custody, and that he'd been deported from the United States the year before. So he was relatively forthcoming. After the interview, though, Karst felt he could not eliminate David Milgard as a suspect for the following reasons. Milgard's arrival time in Saskatoon coincided with the time of the murder. Milgard could be placed in the vicinity of the murder due to his own admission. Milgard was traveling in back lanes on the morning of the murder. Milgard attended the Cadrain's residence, which was a block from where Gail Miller's body was found and admitted to being in an excited condition. Although Milgard denied having blood on his clothing, the clothing could not be found or located. Milgard and his traveling companions were under the effect of drugs on the trip. Milgard and his traveling companions were in financial trouble. 
the type of offenses and record of Milgard's previous behavior was considered to be significant. While Wilson's vehicle was being fixed, Milgard made various attempts to clean the auto. The timelines and discrepancies from story to story were also too much to overlook. Investigators began interviewing the others who'd been in the car that morning, doing so over several occasions. The stories changed with each telling. Ron Wilson said in his first interview, At no time during the time we were in Saskatoon was Dave Milgard out of my sight for more than one or two minutes. The one time being when he drove the car around the block, this would have been well after daylight. I never knew Dave to have a knife. I'm convinced that Dave Milgard never left our company during the morning we were in Saskatoon, end quote. Wilson also stated that, quote, All during this trip, there was never any mention about the murder of a girl in Saskatoon. In fact, I didn't even know about this murder until the police told me today, end quote. Nicole John's first story was also similar. She said she had not seen any blood or a knife, and that, quote, I am sure David or Ron never left me alone for more than one or two minutes that morning. End quote. Cadrain was re-interviewed on March 18th, and he was now claiming to be afraid of David Milgard, that he thought his friend was dangerous. Police decided to interview Nicole, John, and Albert Cadrain together, and that's when Nicole's story began to change. She claimed to be afraid of David Milgard and that he'd sexually assaulted her, forcing her to have sex with him a few times. David's girlfriend, Sharon, gave police a little more to work with as well. She told them that, she didn't know anything about Gail Miller's murder or David's possible involvement, but she did say that Milgard had been, quote, sexually aggressive with her. The snow began to melt, and more evidence turned up. On April 4, 1969, Gail Miller's wallet was found on Avenue O South, a block and a half south of where Gail's body had been discovered, and very close to the Cadrain residence. The Cadrain's next-door neighbor, found a bloody toque in her yard after the murder, turning it over to police on April 5th, 1969. Examination confirmed the presence of blood, but no typing was possible at the time. Perhaps, they thought, David Milgard had tossed the bloody toque and wallet while driving Ron Wilson's car around the block by himself, discarding evidence. The police re-interviewed David's friends multiple times, and each time the police told them that they believed that they knew more than what they were saying that they were not telling the whole story. Being young people and feeling they might be in hot water, they were afraid. Nicole John was interviewed again in April. She stuck to her claims that David had not been out of her sight for more than a few moments, but also said she believed that David was capable of rape and murder and that he'd acted strangely in Saskatoon. By May, Nicole was now saying that while waiting in the car, She'd actually seen David Milgard drag the woman in the black coat into the alleyway and stab her. Nicole John gave the following incriminating statements to police about Milgard's activities on the morning of January 31, 1969. On the trip from Regina to Saskatchewan, Milgard had broken into an elevator at Aylesbury and returned with a stolen flashlight. Shortly after Milgard returned to the vehicle, John said she'd seen a knife. She couldn't say if it came from the elevator, but she didn't see it prior to the break-in. She described the knife as a kitchen knife with a maroon handle and the same as the murder weapon. On the way to Saskatoon, Milgard spoke of wanting to snatch a purse. 
After arriving in Saskatoon, they drove around looking for Kadrain's house and stopped to talk to a girl around the funeral home. Milgard asked the girl for directions and offered a ride which the girl refused. Milgard then called her a stupid bitch. After they drove away about half a block, the vehicle got stuck at the entrance to the alley behind the funeral home. Wilson and Milgard got out to try and push but could not get the vehicle out. Milgard and Wilson went to help with Milgard going in the direction from where they had spoken to the girl and Wilson going the other way. The next recollection Nicole John has is seeing Milgard in the alley on the right side of the car holding the same girl they had spoken to a minute before. She saw him grab her purse. Milgard reached into one of his pockets and pulled out the knife in his right hand. She saw him stabbing the girl with the knife and Milgard taking her around the corner of the alley. Nicole John, who's now out of the car, says she ran in the direction Wilson had gone and recalls running down the street but not seeing anyone. Her next recollection was sitting in the car again, but she did not know how she got back there. She seemed to recall seeing Milgard putting a purse into a garbage can, but she couldn't remember what time it was or where she was when she saw this. She then recalled Milgard returning to the car and sitting beside her. She moved over because she didn't want to be near him. She did not recall talking to Wilson before Milgard got back and did not recall Milgard saying anything. She described the trip to Dan Chuck's back alley. She did not recall seeing blood on David Milgard's clothing or seeing the knife again. Halfway between Saskatoon and Rosetown, Nicole looked in the glove compartment of Wilson's car for a map and found a cosmetic case which she opened up. There was a compact lipstick and eyeshadow. She asked whose it was, nobody knew, and Milgard grabbed it and threw it out the window. She also described Milgard's driving at the time as being very fast. In Calgary, when Wilson and John were alone, Wilson told her that Milgard had killed a girl in Saskatoon and John replied, I know. Nothing further was said about the murder. John said that she had not told anyone about witnessing the murder and didn't recall actually witnessing a murder until the day before she talked with the police. She stated, however, that she was aware that she was somehow involved. Miller's black coat that one of the police officers showed her on May 23, 1969, John said was identical to the one worn by the girl they'd spoken to and that Milgard had attacked. Ron Wilson's story also changed, seriously implicating Milgard in the murder. Wilson's new information was as follows. He identified a maroon-handled paring knife as a knife similar to what David Milgard had in his possession on the trip from Regina to Saskatoon. He said that after Milgard returned to the car from being stuck, he stated something to the effect that, I fixed her. He said that he had in fact seen blood on David Milgard's trousers when Milgard was changing clothes at Cadrain's. On the trip to Calgary, Nicole John was very nervous and occasionally screamed. John found a lady's compact in the vehicle, and when she asked who it belonged to, Milgard grabbed it and threw it out the window. Wilson said that Milgard told him in Calgary that he had grabbed a girl in Saskatoon and had tried to take her purse. However, she fought and he had jabbed her with a knife and had put her purse in a trash can and he thought she would be all right. Interestingly, information about the discovery of evidence in the murder was in the newspapers at that time and easily accessible. Police had even driven Nicole John around to the scene of the murder to try and jog her memory. However, at this point, police felt they had all they needed to arrest David Milgard for the murder of Gail Miller. At least one of his friends placed him there, and two of them said that they'd seen blood on his clothing. 
David was in Prince George, British Columbia, selling magazines at the time, and on hearing that the police were looking for him, he turned himself into the RCMP detachment there. David was arrested and charged with Gail Miller's murder. David Edgar Milgard was committed to stand trial, and that began on January 19, 1970. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 224, Tragedy Times 2, Gail Miller and David Milgard Part 1. We'll hear about David Milgard's trial and its aftermath in the next episode. I'm looking forward to that one because this was one of those huge, huge, huge cases here mm-hmm. in Canada. Everyone of a certain age can remember that. It was huge for years after yeah. as well. And we have to remember, right? He was 16. You said it, but he was 16 when all of this happened. 16 years old. 16 years old. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for part two. Yes. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right. Here is our first voicemail of the week. Hey, uh, Dark Poutine, it's Trish Dabkowski from Connecticut. Thank you for picking my uh, suggestion. I feel like I won $10 at the casino. So, uh, uh, and this weekend I'm going to be in my favorite city, Toronto, and I'm going to go on a couple crime tours with retired detectives. It should be fun. So thanks a lot. And the reason I heard of the Irwin Black murders was because they named a part of a highway after those two in 2016, I believe. So if you were down there, remember that highway. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Trish. Yeah, that was definitely something that I found in my research, and I neglected to mention it in the episode. So thanks for the update on that. Yeah, they did name a portion of the highway after uh, Trooper Black and Corporal Irwin. Oh, did they? Yeah, in Florida, nearby. Oh, well, thanks yeah. for calling from Connecticut. Connecticut, yeah. And, and Trish is going to Toronto and she's going to have some, uh, some fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she going to a gay bar? No, she's going to. Oh, dance. Just dance oh, okay. generally. Maybe I gotcha. in a gay bar. I thought, well, you know, it happens. I was watching a show, uh, that is from the UK and it's just called Bouncers. And it was about, uh, one of the episodes was about bouncers at a gay bar in Newcastle. Okay. Yeah. It was quite interesting. And uh, it looked like uh, the crowd was a little nicer, strangely enough. Um, there was the odd person. There was one homophobic gentleman who tried to get into the bar and, oh, and to do dumb stuff, but whatever. Oh, wrong bar, buddy. Yep. <laughs> but uh, it... Lo- I've never been to Newcastle. Well, neither have I. But it looks like the UK is a place uh, where there is uh, much debauchery around alcohol. <laughs> are Holy you, crow. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. No, of course there is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the weekends are like a war zone in any, oh, in any, in so, in any um, town. So in other words, keep your head down. And I will have information about the meetup in London coming up very soon. Uh, looks like Michael from uh, the Murder Mile Walks is going to help us out. So, mm-hmm. Alas. Yeah, I wish you could be there. Anyway. Moving on, let's listen to another voicemail. Here's number two. 
Hey, Micah Matthew. I'm calling you from Georgetown, Ontario. I haven't been listening very long, but I love your show. I did have to pause listening to it for a little while uh, because after listening to a lot of true crime episodes, I was starting to see potential true crime everywhere I went. Like, oh, well, better close that window or better walk this way um, and uh, needed to take a break, but came back to it because I really enjoy it. Um, I've been listening to episodes in reverse now from when I started listening and I love the phone calls at the end and the chat at the end because then it helps me like really get excited about the next episode. Like what did I miss that everybody's talking about? So, um, keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. So if you listen to episodes in reverse, there might be spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of funny, but, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Sometimes I need a break from true crime too. So does Matthew. We uh, sort of being immersed in this stuff for a long time tends to wear on you. I told Justin that I was a true crime uh, specialist now. Oh, yeah. And and that I could get away with it if I wanted to bump him off. Oh, don't do that. I don't think domestic violence is funny, Matthew. It wouldn't be violent. (laughs) And I would never do that. You're a terrible person. He's lovely. He really is. He's a great guy. He does not, Justin does not need bumping off. No. However, if something happens to him that's unexplained. Now now the the police have this recording. Exactly. So you're in big trouble. Can we do it again? Nope. Okay. (laughs) And away we go for our third voicemail of the week. Hi, Mike, Matthew, and Steve. My name is River. My pronouns are they and them, and I'm calling from Tunaka Territory, also known as the East Kootenays in Columbia Valley in British Columbia. I'm just kind of randomly listening to the 2021 holiday episode for the first time, and it is brilliant. I love it so much. Um, looking at Home Alone from a crime perspective and a, like, trauma perspective um, is not an easy thing to do and you all did it so well Um, just really fabulous and so many of the references especially Shit's Creek just made me cackle as I was driving Um, I also really want to give you a shout out and appreciation for I don't know if it was planned or just kind of came friendly uh, referencing the Colton Bushy um, case uh it's a really important canadian case and i hope it's never forgotten it was a huge tragedy and i really appreciate um the work that y'all do in uh, making sure you cover a lot of missing murdered and indigenous women uh girls and two-spirit people um in your podcast i really should have written a script here (laughs) adhd and not much sleep Anyway, um, I really appreciate y'all. You do a great job. Um, you keep me company on very long work days where I work by myself. And I am going to go become a Patreon sub- subscriber, just like I've intended to do forever. Um, yeah, just thank y'all. And uh, I hope you eat a really delicious butter tart or an Nanaimo bar soon. Okay, bye. Not a single person told us to go shit in our hats this week. I like River's voice. Yeah, me R- too. River could do podcasting. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of impressed that uh, we had uh, someone tell us that they were going to be a Patreon. 
I'm also impressed that they said butter tarts because everyone talks about Nanaimo bars, which I hate, but I love butter tarts. Yeah. I like both. I can, anything with a bit of sugar in it, <laughs> you got me. But you're already sweet enough, Mike. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, River. Thanks, River. Uh, we might be saying your name next. Let's see. We'll find out when we do patrons. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. And it is time for patrons and donut money donor shoutouts. And returning as a patron is Lisa Longmire. Thank you so much for returning. Thank you, Lisa. Really appreciate it. Uh, Lisa is from Beaumont, Alberta, Canada. Beaumont. Beaumont. Yeah. So that's really cool. Beaumont. Beaumont. What does Lisa do there in Beaumont, Matthew? She makes uh, quill pens. Quill pens? Yeah. Wow. So what kind of birds do quill pens come from? I've always wondered that. She, are, she, are they eagle feathers? No, she uses dinosaur feathers. Well, all birds are dinosaurs. But original ones. Oh, so they're like stone. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're... I'm uh, just making this shit up because I went to see... Um, I went to the cinema yesterday by myself and watched the new... Um, Jurassic Park. Oh, there's another one. Yeah. They're still making those? It was good. Mm-hmm. They, they brought all of the characters back, all the actors, oh, or dear. a lot of them. Wow. And all I have to say is, uh, what, what's his name? The Fly? Jeff Goldblum. I wish I was as cool as Jeff Goldblum. He is a cool guy. <laughs> he's so cool. Yeah. He's a He's odd, but cool. Quirky, but really cool. Yeah, quirky's a good thing. Good name. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Next, we have Clayton Gibson. And Clayton is from St. Charles, Missouri in the U.S. of A. And what does Clayton do there in St. Charles, Missouri? First of all, Clayton is such a good name. Clayton? I love that name. We used to call my friend Clayton, called him Claymore, as in Claymore Mine. Okay. But anyway. Yeah, I like the name Clayton. Okay. It's like solid, you know? It is a solid, very, Prop- it's a masculine name. Proper, yeah. solid name. Mm-hmm. Clayton. Clayton. What does Clayton do? History professor. Good for Clayton. What, what, what branch of history? Old. Old? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so ancient history. Mm. So the Greeks and Romans and anything maybe over, Egyptians. Anything over 50 years. That's ancient history? Well, well I'm, both of us are I, old. I turned 52 this week and I feel yeah, like ancient. Do. Matthew's birthday's on Wednesday. Uh, so everybody, Matthew, his birthday is on Wednesday. He will be 52. 52. The same number as there are cards in the deck. I bet you that surprises people. I'm way more mature than a 52-year-old. Okay. <laughs> Moving forward. Thank you so much, Clayton. Thanks, Clayton. Next, we have 
Naomi Wolfseifer. And Naomi is from Lafayette, Indiana. Lafayette. And I'm wondering what Naomi does there in Lafayette. She owns a burlesque establishment. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I've never been to a burlesque show since I went to Folly's Bergère in Paris. Okay. Um, that was fun. I was yeah. 16 and drunk, so I don't really remember a lot of it. Yeah, so she, she owns it? Mm-hmm. Runs, runs the show? I'd like to go to some burlesque. I, Proper I quite, burlesque is yeah. nice. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you, thank Naomi. Thank you so much, Naomi. Next, we have Panthea Bishop. Panthea Bishop. And Panthea doesn't tell us where she's from. So where is Panthea Bishop from, Matthew? She's from Marfa, Texas. Marfa, Texas. Marfa, M-A-R-F-A. Oh, Marfa. Yeah. Okay, and what does she do there in Marfa? She is an artist. Panthea is an artiste yes. in, in Marfa. Marfa is famous for, it's a very sort of artistic community. Does she paint? M multimedia. Multimedia, oh, fun. Yeah. So all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Paper mache, etc. Papier mache. Exactly. Papier mache. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Panthea. There in Marfa. Next, we have Lish Sams, and Lish is from Brantford, Ontario. Brantford. Good old Brantford. Good old Brantford. Um, Isn't that where the great one's from? Is Wayne Gretzky from Brantford? Yeah, or Brantford. Ton, maybe. I can't remember. I, don't know. I should know. He's I'm probably only, going to hell because I don't know. He's the only hockey player I know. <laughs> See, this this upsets me. <laughs> anyway, I don't really follow hockey that much, but it looks like Colorado's going to beat the crap right out of uh, Tampa. But yeah, exactly. Anywho, <laughs> uh, what does Lish do there in Brantford, Matthew? She runs the Wayne Gretzky um, Hall of Fame Records Society. Oh, perfect. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and we, it's, he's probably not even from there. No. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to bother looking it up because, yeah. Isn't he from Edmonton, actually? No, he played in Edmonton. You mean, you know. He to... played on the Oilers. You know, it took me the longest time to realize that places like Edmonton Oilers or wherever that you didn't have to be from that town to play for the team. Oh my. <laughs> Moving forward, we have John Jutras and John is from Naranda in Australia. Yay. Naranda. Spell that. L oh, N O R A N D A. Naranda. Naranda. Naranda, Australia. I wonder if he John, knew. John, we apologize for the accent. No, we don't. <laughs> okay, I apologize. And for what that. does John do there in Australia? Is he a nice man? Of course he is. Oh, okay, good. Of course he's a nice man. Yeah. I, I think he is too because he's he's donating to the show. I think he's a hotel magnate. A hotel magnate? Yes. Oh, wow. He has hotels all over Australia. All over Australia. And uh, is it, are they pet friendly? Would Steve be able to stay there? Certain floors are. Certain floors. Oh, that makes the, sense. The even floors. The even floors. Yeah. Even Steven. Steve. Oh. 
I just made that up. Well, thank you, John. Thanks, John. Uh, and uh, thanks for letting pets in your hotel. Much appreciated. Uh, from the UK. Drumroll. We have Joe Fisher. Joe Fisher. And I think it might be pronounced boot, butcombe or buttcombe. Spell it. B-U-T-C-O-M-B-E. Buttcombe. Buttcombe? <laughs> That's unfortunate. Anyway, Joe, what does Joe do there in Butcombe? He works at no, a... Joe, is she? Sorry. Yeah. Is she? J-O. Oh, Joe. J with an O. Yes. Okay. Joe? Mm-hmm. She makes um, condiments. She makes condiments. There's a lot of condiments that are British. Be yeah. I guess because the food well, is that's so maybe, bland. That, that, well, that used to be the case. It's not anymore. Okay. So I just thought of that because whenever we have somebody from the UK, I get all homesick. And mm -hmm. last night, Justin and I were having a whole discussion about Leon Perrin's and HP sauce and everything. So. I love HP sauce. Houses of Parliament. I use um, HP uh, on my hot dogs rather than ketchup. Okay. I yes. like it. So Joe just does like organic posh condiments. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank you so much, Joe Fisher. And maybe I'll meet her when I'm in, uh, that would be cool. In England. And it looks like it's going to be Saturday, July 23rd is going to be the meetup. Really looking forward to it. So, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll let people know where as soon as I know for sure. Next up, we have River, who said they were going to become a patron, and it looks like they're from Canal Flats here in British Columbia. Cool. Canal Flats. So, River, what do they do? Uh, I think River is sort of a, a roaming healer mystic. Oh, okay. With, like with, a shaman. Yeah, I mean, because... It, the name River is so beautiful. It is. And, and yeah, and I, I think River goes around making people feel better. That's nice. Becoming a patron made me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be sort of a healer and sort of, not physical, but maybe mental, spiritual. I try to do that. Try to make people feel better. And I try to do that. It's a tough that. old world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I like to be somebody who contributes rather than... Yeah. takes yeah yeah well thank you river we really appreciate you i i hugged somebody who i hit with a car this week you hit someone with a car yeah why didn't i know this story so i clipped i clipped his arm oh man and ran up to him like threw it into park ran up to him i was like oh my god are you all right and I was like, I was too close. He's like, I wasn't looking. He lifted his arm and hit the mirror, like flew off the car, actually. Oh, no. And then we hugged it out. Oh, that's so, good. And I think in a way that was sort of a healing thing. Could have been negative, but yeah. we made it positive. That's scary when that happens. Yeah. I'm glad I you I felt did. horrible. Honestly, my kid, even it was like, he was okay, but just... Uh, the thought that I hurt another human being, like this, my stomach just, just feels sick. Sank. Yeah. I, I feel that loose burning feeling whenever yeah. I think that somebody is hurt. Yeah. Uh, 
Our last patron is yeah. Jessica Tegart. And I don't know where Jessica is from, Matthew. Can you give me the heads up? Magnolia Springs, Alabama. Oh, Alabama. Alabama, I noticed, is the most religious um, place in the United States, percentage-wise. Seventy-seven oh, cool. percent of people in Alabama are cool. find religion important in their lives. Good for them. Yeah. So she runs a bed and breakfast in Magnolia Springs. I bet you that would be a lovely bed and breakfast. It does sound really nice. Yeah, yeah I would like to see the southern states a little more. Yeah. Um, I, I've been to Tennessee. Okay. Been to New Orleans, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so in Lu Louisiana, but I haven't been to Alabama. I've been to Atlanta, is Georgia. Is Texas considered a southern state? Yes. Okay, I've been to Texas. Yeah. And Arizona, is that a southern state? Sure. Okay. <laughs> it's a western state. Okay. Well, I've been to those places. <laughs> yeah. Nevada, we've been to. And Nevada. That, that's western as well, but. Anywho. Florida, that's the southern state. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica, Thank and you. hope that your business is returning after the pandemic is... Uh, In that Gulf Coast town of yours. That Gulf Coast town. We don't have any uh, donut money donors this week, but... but that's, that's okay. We had lots of Patreons. Thank you so much, guys. We do have <gasps> Sharon Hogue. Sharon! Has sent us some donut money via Interac. Do you, you say Sharon Hogue? Yeah. She's a Strathroy girl. Is she? Yeah. And she says, a few bucks to fill your bellies with some good stuffs and give Steve a belly rub, please. Oh, I will. Oh, yeah. Sharon, also sorry to hear, your grandma died this week. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, our condolences, Our condolences, Sharon. Sharon. And thank you for the donation. Lovely. Lovely. And that is it for that. Okay. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. We will be back next week with part two of Tragedy Times 2, Gail Miller and David Milgard. Yeah, looking forward to that one. Me too. Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.